listen. The world is talking. The World Talk Radio Variety Channel. This is Jerry Prokopovich with Civil War Talk Radio. The real war will never get in the books, was the famous comment of Walt Whitman. But if anyone was going to put it there, it would be the men who fought in it themselves. Many of them left memoirs. Other writers later imagined the war in their novels. Today we'll look at the relationship of that, those two groups and Civil War writing in general. As we talk to Craig Warren, author of the forthcoming book, Scars to Prove It, The Civil War Soldier and American Fiction. That's today on Civil War Talk Radio. Hotline. Please, my daughter, I think she might hurt herself. Okay, ma'am. Her arms and legs are moving in all different directions. Yeah. Ma'am, is that music I hear? Yeah, I put on the radio and then she just lost control. Ma'am, she might be trying to dance. What? Dancing, ma'am. No, 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 I've seen dancing and that's not it. The less art kids get, the more it shows. Please visit us at americansforthearts.org. Art. Ask for more. A public service message brought to you by Americans for the Arts and the Ad Council. Listen. Listen. The world is talking. The World Talk Radio Variety Channel. Welcome to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, coming to you this Friday afternoon in June 2009 from the campus of East Carolina University, but not speaking on behalf of the university nor will my guest speak on behalf of his university or other institution. We're all doing this for ourselves today, as always. And indeed, here on the campus of ECU, we're all doing everything for ourselves. We've just been given notice in the last uh, week or so that we need to cut the budgets a little further for next year because the state won't supply enough money. Um, the latest cut I've been asked to make in our department is in the vicinity of uh, 150 to $250,000, which is interesting because our total budget is only $111,000 for operating money. Um, quite how we're supposed to manage that is something of a mystery. Apparently, we were supposed to fire a bunch of people, but that gets into all kinds of ugly issues of violating contracts. Well, no one wants to hear the dirty laundry aired, but um, what we're all waiting for is the legislature in uh, in Raleigh to uh, to grow a pair, as they say, and uh, get taxes where they need to be to cover the outrageous shortfall in revenue that is hurting universities across this state and I think across the country. California is certainly suffering. Uh, many other states are in a bad way these days as the economic downturn takes its toll on tax revenues and in turn that gets taken out of the hide of public services, especially public higher education. So uh, the show will continue because the university doesn't know I'm doing it, so it's not costing them anything. And uh, I suppose I could be perhaps, you know, maybe patrolling the parking lot or doing some, some extra duty during the show to allow us to lay off some of the facilities people. There might be some way they could turn it to their advantage if they knew I was here. But 
It's a Friday afternoon. The campus is largely vacant on this beautiful beach weekend day. Uh, just a few of us hardcore uh, public servants uh, doing our research, our teaching, our writing, or in this case, talking about the Civil War and history, uh, Civil War, things related uh, to the history of the Civil War. Uh, one last uh, note is to thank you listeners, as always, for the donations that keep the Civil War Talk Radio Book Fund going, allowing the purchase of new books. Uh, if you want to contribute to that, please uh, feel free to do so through PayPal at CivilWarTR at AOL.com. I'll be happy to send you a copy of Did Lincoln Own Slaves? Another Frequently Asked Questions About Abraham Lincoln or all for the regiment, the Army of the Ohio, 1861-1862. If you uh, send in $20 or more and would care for a copy of one of those books, just let me know, and I'll get that out to you. Also, as always, keep your suggestions coming in for people to have on the show. We're always looking for new guests, uh, new ideas, new books to read. This past week, uh, I've been teaching a course on the Civil War during the regular term, there's too much administration, but during the summer as sort of a busman's holiday, I, I treat myself to teaching a summer session of U.S. history, 1840-1877. And uh, there's something about the summer students. Uh, some of them at, at apparently take courses just because they are remedial and trying to get back in school or something. But at the higher levels, for the upper division courses, uh, my experience has been you get the best students, uh, people home from another school, maybe just taking a summer class. And it has just been a, a treat, I have to say, to have uh, 14 motivated, interested students uh, discussing today whether the uh, war wrought a revolution within the South or the North uh, at home uh, or whether the changes that made were ephemeral and, and how they worked and uh, it, it's it's a, a pleasant break from from administration to to be with students who actually care about what uh, those of us listening to the show all care about uh, this most interesting period in our American history. Well, enough uh, chit chat about life here in Greenville, North Carolina, and the uh, the activities at ECU. Uh, let us move on to uh, today's guest. Who I'm happy to welcome to the show is. Uh, Craig Warren, uh, new to the show. Craig, are you there? I am here, Jerry. Thank you for having me. Well, thank you for being on the show. And at short notice, uh, we had a, a guest lined up who came down with laryngitis earlier this week and emailed me to say he could not do it. And you were very gracious to uh, step in uh, on the double and, and fill in. So well, uh, it, It's a pleasure to do it. Uh, you know, my wife and I, we have a, a two-month-old son. And so, so far this summer, we've spent the vast majority of our time at home talking about diapers and, and bottles and pacifiers and so forth. So this conversation today will be a change of pace for me. Well, well, congratulations, first of all. That's wonderful. Oh, thank you. And uh, my, my two daughters are middle school and high school age, but I, I understand the, the the way one's entire vocabulary slips back and forth uh, as we're talking. If you were to suddenly say, isn't Ambrose Bearson nice? <laughs> if you start doing that, I will understand that uh, that's the new parent uh, uh, lingo just, just, just coming right out. Um, now, 
tell me, uh, you and I haven't had the chance to meet anywhere on the, uh, the academic circuit. Uh, can you tell me where you work? Uh, what, what's your day job? Sure. Well, my day job is that uh, I'm an assistant professor of English uh, at Penn State Erie, uh, the Behrend College, and we're the uh, the Penn State campus, uh, most north in the state. We're up at the chimney of Pennsylvania, right on the lake. And so, uh, on a day like this, it's just beautiful. We've got water. We've got uh, sailboats. Um, eight months of the year, we have blizzards. Uh, so, I'm, you know, I enjoy the the time we have in the spring and the summer. But uh yes, I I'm in the English department, but I have a, a very strong interest in history, European history, American history, and especially uh American Civil War history. Uh, and that's since graduate school at least become part of my scholarship. How did you come by that interest? Is it something that's always grabbed you or any particular moment? Well, I think that it goes back to the fact that I grew up in Northern Virginia, and uh, you know, if you live there as a young person, you're absolutely inundated with references to the war. Uh, as a Boy Scout, I hiked all over the battlefields in Manassas and Fredericksburg and Antietam and Gettysburg, and um, just every day there's this background noise related to the Civil War. Uh, just as an example, I attended Robert E. Lee High School in Springfield, Virginia, uh, so I wasn't actively thinking about about uh, Lee every day when I went into the the classroom, but his name was above the door. And so that was always, again, in the background, and uh, it was an interest of mine. I would read books, novels, and so forth, but uh, it it took a few years for me to actually work that into uh, the research that I've been doing. So you uh, you say you're in the English department. Did you, uh, uh, where did you do your graduate work? uh, How how did you get your... Oh, absolutely. I was both an undergrad and a graduate student at the University of Virginia. And uh, I had the the real uh, fortune of finishing the master's program and starting the Ph.D. program at UVA at the same time that Gary Gallagher came to UVA from his previous academic post uh, at Penn State. And uh, I, I went to a conference that he organized on the UVA campus, and I read his book, uh, Lee and His Generals in War and Memory, and uh, I, I had no idea how he'd react, but I contacted him and asked if he'd be interested in uh, advising an independent study with me. Um, this is not yet a dissertation, but it was a, um, a 16-week research project culminating in an essay. And I was deeply interested in Irish-American culture at the time and the immigrant experience in America, uh, and I knew he had interest in Civil War memory. And so he was kind enough to uh, advise me on a project that involved uh, looking at uh, memoirs uh, and regimental histories by veterans of the Irish Brigade. And if you know Gary Gallagher, and I know you've interviewed him before, you know he's one of the three busiest people on the planet. <laughs> so the, fact that he, the fact that he made time for me, someone who he, he had never met and who wasn't even in the history department, I think speaks volumes to his role as a teacher. Well, that, yeah, he is uh, an amazing uh, person in terms of his productivity. Mm-hmm. Um, if only he would learn to express his opinions a little more uh, openly and not be so shy about everything. Uh, <laughs> and that, that's deep sarcasm. Our listeners, uh, yes, I wrote it to Texas, <laughs> who, who have heard him speak, uh, know that uh, he is one of the most uh, uh, sometimes controversial people in the Civil War field because he will tell you uh, what he thinks uh, and does not worry if you agree. Uh, he'll, he'll discuss it with you. Now, is, was this paper then the genesis of, of the, the book that you have uh, forthcoming? 
Well, in, in a sense, yes, because it really introduced me to the, the active study of uh, veterans' memoirs, regimental histories, published diaries, annotated maps, all, all this enormous body of literature that was produced in the late 19th century and early 20th century by veterans north and south. But that, that article actually um, became um, uh, a project that I worked on uh, with him after the independent study was up. He encouraged me to revise it and to submit it to the journal Civil War History. Uh, and it was accepted there. Uh, I was fortunate enough to have it uh, appear in the September 2001 issue. Unfortunately, it came out about three days after 9-11. Uh, and so not many people read the article at the time. Um, but uh, <laughs> it's, uh, yeah, it was my first published article. And since then, I've, I've just really been interested in veterans of the Civil War, their published uh, memoirs, and how those representations have influenced writers of later generations. Well, let's talk about that. Um, unfortunately, and un- unusual for the show, I-, I haven't been able to read your book, which, as you point out, is not out yet. Mm-hmm. But uh, Sometimes I get a manuscript or something. Uh, and in this case, uh, as we-, we put this together on an ad hoc basis this week, I wasn't able to do it. But I'm very curious and very interested in the subject. The... Uh, well, well, tell us a little more detail. What, what's the, the thesis? Uh, what, what's, what's your angle on, on how these uh, memoirists and, and writing soldiers affected mm-hmm. what we think about the war? Right. Well, the book uh, explores seven novels uh, about the Civil War, uh, most of which are, will be familiar to uh, listeners of your show. I uh, explore Stephen Crane's The Red Badge of Courage. I look at Margaret Mitchell's Gone with the Wind, uh, Caroline Gordon's novel, a, a bit more obscure, uh, titled None Shall Look Back, which was published in 1937, just a, a year after uh, Gone with the Wind. Two novels by Faulkner, The Unvanquished and Absalom, Absalom. Uh, and then the, the final chapter of the book is devoted to Michael Scherer's The Killer Angels. And then just to round all this out, to, to bring things up to the sort of present day, I also look at Howard Barr's 2006 novel, The Judas Field. But um, to answer a question about what I do with this material, um, you know, the standard approach with literary critics is to look at uh, a historical novel, let's say The Killer Angels by Michael Scherer. It was published in 1974. And so what we might do is look at that representation of the war as it's found in Shara's book and think about how it reflects and comments on the Vietnam War, which was just coming to an end uh, in 1974. Uh, similarly, we might look at a book that was published in America in 1950s, uh, 1960s, and think about how its representation of the war is informed by and reflects something of the civil rights movement in American culture at the time. Um, and I think that this approach to Civil War literature is rewarding and interesting, and I actually do a lot of that in my book, too. But I wanted as well to step back and look at how these novels of the Civil War uh, were in conversation with an entirely different body of work, and, and that is this, this vast body of veterans' material. Um, again, the these chronicles, histories that were published throughout the, the late 19th century and early 20th um, had a tremendous impact on how Americans came to understand the war and its meanings. And it's certainly the case that it influenced later writers. Um, and so what I do is look at how later writers, in, so, in some cases, respond to individual memoirs. Uh, when, I'm, when I'm talking about uh, 
Carolyn Gordon's Nun Shall Look Back, you know, I, I show that she's lifting whole lines, paragraphs even, from Battles and Leaders of the Civil War, which is, I'm sure, you know, is a collection of, uh, of the remembrances of the war by the war's participants. Um, and other times I'm talking about how novelists have responded more generally to larger trends and interpretations of the war that were first crafted by veterans. Um, so the lost cause tradition, uh, the reconciliation tradition, which was uh, connected to the lost cause. I think uh, some scholars call that the John B. Gordon School of Civil War Memory, uh, the emancipationist vision, uh, and so forth. And so um, I'm not necessarily interested in showing how memoirs have have shaped and brainwashed writers of later generations. I'm actually much more interested in showing how uh, writers like Faulkner and Crane and Mitchell have uh, received this information, uh, sort of internalized it, and, and then have struggled with it at times while trying to, to achieve their own artistic ends. Well, in, as a historian, my first thought would be, what evidence have you found to show that Faulkner or uh, uh, Crane or Carolyn Gordon actually read these memoirs. How, how do you know which ones they read? Sure. Well, I mean, you can visit uh, if you go to Roanoke, for instance, Faulkner's home. You know, you can you can read about uh, the volumes uh, that were on his bookshelf, and so you can tell which veteran memoirs uh, uh, he had. Um, Caroline Gordon, in her letters, makes frequent references to the fact that she has been reading, uh, you know, X book or Y text, uh, and and in uh, in her case, you can actually you, you can prove that she's been reading them because they're just verbatim borrowings. Uh, she'll take the the voice um, of uh, a particular soldier, and then build that into uh, her narrative. Um, Crane, you know, there's a lot of documentary evidence that he was reading Century Magazine and then the Battles and Leaders of the Civil War, the, the four-volume set that was culled from that larger series. Um, and so we have records um, in a, a number of ways to show that these, these writers were engaging those texts. Um, and, and sometimes, you know, clear evidence than, than in others. But uh, it's, it's very obvious, especially when one when, when goes through uh, a book like The Killer Angels, uh, that the authors of Civil War fictions are very deeply read in the words of veterans. Does it make a difference, do you think, that they're, they're reading the actual words of veterans as opposed to reading secondary sources about the war? I think it does, and, and I think that there's always this drive for authenticity. Um, you know, we, we as a culture are obsessed with, uh, the, uh, with the surfaces, of course, but there's also this, this notion that we need to find some true authentic voice or an authentic culture, uh, something that can really ground us. And I think that writers um, of Civil War fiction are deeply interested in, in finding the words of the men who were in battle themselves, you know, those who were there. Uh, and sometimes that's not satisfying. You know, Stephen Crane was upset whenever he would read the Battles and Leaders uh, accounts. Uh, he said that the soldiers um, could describe what they did, but they were as emotionless as rocks. <laughs> and so part of his project was to try to put himself down there in the smoke and, and, and the sulfurous uh, clouds and, and uh, sort of breathe life into veterans' narratives that were a bit dry. Well, that, that's something uh, I'd like to explore further. We're going to take a short break. We'll come right back in just a moment, talking today with Craig Warren on Civil War Talk Radio. The World Talk Radio Variety Channel. 
novelists of the Civil War drew on accounts written by veterans for their information, but those accounts show the veterans sometimes emotionless as rocks. How does a novelist get inside the skin of a Civil War soldier? We'll find out when we return on Civil War Talk Radio. In an instant, my son could make anyone smile. In an instant, he was gone. The driver was looking for other cars. But he didn't watch out for my son crossing the street. Imagine, in the time it takes to stop for someone in the crosswalk, you could save a life or change yours forever. A message from the Federal Highway Administration. Every day, the chances of becoming a victim of mercury poisoning increase. Mercury poisoning may cause neurological damage that impairs learning, vision, and memory. And mercury itself has become part of our everyday lives, absorbed by certain fish, taken into our bodies, and passed on to our children like a common cold. But you can stop this. Log on to earthshare.org and find out how. A public service message brought to you by Earthshare and the Ad Council. The World Talk Radio Variety Channel, where the world comes to listen and talk. Welcome back to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich at East Carolina University, talking today with Craig Warren, author of the forthcoming book, Scars to Prove It, The Civil War Soldier in American Fiction. We talked in our first segment a little bit about what this book describes, the uh, novels written by such uh, uh, famous authors as Stephen Crane, Margaret Mitchell, William Faulkner, Michael Shara, uh, and the the uh, question of how these authors drew on historical sources, in particular the memoirs written by those who were there. Uh, and, uh, Craig, when we left off, you were talking about uh, Stephen Crane's frustration mm-hmm. that uh, some of the, the soldiers who were in the war seemed to, uh, you know, their, their, their writing did not seem to convey the actual emotions. And uh, I would guess pretty much everyone listening to the show has read Red Badge of Courage. Sure. Uh, and, and, of course, it does just that. It puts you on... The ba- on a battlefield doesn't ever tell you which one. Right. Uh, you, you've got that sort of worm's eye view of the whole affair, uh, not knowing what you're doing or where or when or why. Uh, now, my my question about this, <coughs> excuse me, my question is: uh, Is it possible to some extent that the soldiers don't convey a whole lot of emotion because the this would not be true, I guess, in Crane's case, but but that the emotional palette of the 19th century American soldier was different from that of today. And what I'm specifically thinking of is uh, uh, some movie I was seeing, I think it may have been Pearl Harbor, the dreadful uh, modern version. Yeah, terrible. <laughs> terrible movie. And, and I think it was the scene where, where General Mitchell's airplanes take off from the carrier deck, and the deck crew all cheer and uh, wave their hats. Uh, and they're all happy, like a crowd at a football game. Mm. But World War II veterans, those who are still with us, uh, 
as a rule, are not a, a, a cheering, emotive crowd. Uh, they, they tend to be tight-lipped. Uh, they come from a generation where you didn't go around displaying your emotions in that sort of way. That wasn't how men behaved. And yet the modern filmmakers, having no clue, just portray, uh, portray their 1940s characters as if it were the 2000s. Mm. What about 1860s men? Maybe, maybe they did not wear their emotions so openly. Uh, is there is there anything there, or am I off on a, a wild goose chase? No, I think you're right. Uh, I think that uh, there was this this sense that uh, you know one one should uh, uh, have sort of what we think of as the British stiff upper lip, right? You you uh, keep your emotions to yourself, you keep them under control. That's how you demonstrate sort of uh, sort of manly uh, uh, courage, um, and that you 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 suffer internally when you're thinking back on traumatic events. Um, and and I think there's yeah there's much uh, uh, of that which which is something that someone like Stephen Crane had to deal with. Um, now, when I said that he was frustrated by these veterans who were writing these sort of wooden accounts, uh, I don't mean that he was in any way um, disparaging the, the soldiers themselves. I mean, he, he was really fascinated by them and interested in them and wanted to sort of put himself in their skin. He just was frustrated by the fact that they didn't uh, do that for him on the page. And so he had to employ a number of different strategies to kind of put himself down in the smoke and the fire and put the reader there right along with him. Um, and one way he did it was, uh, as he described it, to, to sort of think about episodes from his own life uh, where he felt that there was speed and confusion and, and disorientation. And so for him, he thought about the, the rage he experienced on the football field, uh, he said. Um, and, and he kind of used that as a way to, to sort of breathe life into these otherwise kind of stilted wooden accounts of war. Um, now, the fact that uh, some of the veterans who read his book uh, at first mistakenly believed that he was a soldier who had actually served demonstrates that you know he had achieved some measure of success in doing that. Um, there are other ways, too, that, that writers of, of Civil War fiction can try to get inside the heads of, of soldiers and understand what they had experienced. Um, one way is to look at more modern, more recent uh, memoirs by combat veterans, say, of World War II or Vietnam, to look at uh, how they describe their combat experiences, and then to try to... Uh, piece some of that into, to, to, to stitch that into some of the, um, of what we know of Civil War veterans' experiences. Um, and a third way, of course, is to find the rare Civil War veteran who did not, uh, you know, uh, take a stilted, wooden approach to his experiences and who actually described all the horror and, and frustration and terror of the battlefield. And so there's a you know, figure like Ambrose Bierce who can do that. So there's are three strategies. The the, uh, the second one does strike me as running afoul of, of what you mentioned at the beginning, uh, the the strategy of, of analyzing, say, the Killer Angels in the light of the Vietnam War, mm-hmm. uh, or, or Margaret Mitchell in the aftermath of World War One. Um, that, that that then you're implying attitudes again from another generation, but at the same time, it certainly makes sense that veterans of, of any war would have some insight into the the experience of combat uh, in any other war. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and there's a, they're not the novelist Howard Barr, who who wrote the Judas Field, published in 2006. Um, uh, he is a, a Vietnam veteran, and uh, I'm sure that to some extent informs his 
uh, writing about Civil War veterans who are haunted by the war, physically, mentally, um, sort of shells of their former selves. Um, and so, yeah, I suppose in that, in that way, as you're saying, that kind of violates the policy of looking for the authentic voice of the Civil War soldier. But I, I don't think it's done to, to sort of you know, push that, that authentic soldier aside. It, it, it's done more as a vehicle to try to understand that figure better. And I'm thinking still on this idea of the different emotional uh, techniques that people use to express themselves, uh, you know, changing over time. Uh, you mentioned that you know men w- would have been more tight-lipped; uh, the stiff upper lip would be appropriate. But at the same time, men were also much freer to express uh, affection to one another. Um, in some of the songs we have from the war, you know, we have drunk from the same canteen kind of uh, almost maudlin sentimentality of, of comradeship, which uh, in the cynical 20th century is, is no longer uh, an appropriate mode of expression. Hmm. Uh, so, so there are ways that people look uh, differently. But that's the, the good novelist does that. Uh, you, you read these novels and you, you, you get the sense, yes, I'm, I'm in their world now. It's not... Modern figures, you know, in, in it's not a costume drama where they're just wearing the clothes. You actually feel they're 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 there. Right. Let me ask. Uh, let, let's go to the what must be the hardest case of these. Uh, at least uh, always seen that way in American lit to me. Uh, Faulkner. <laughs> okay. Um, what is what does he get from the memoirist? Yeah, Faulkner is actually. Um, uh, I think that. He presented the biggest challenge to me when writing this book because uh, you know he's the premier writer of the 20th century South. Um, he's someone whose family history is is deeply connected to the Confederacy. Um, he's someone who obviously uh, has has read accounts of the Civil War. Uh, his brother um, wrote a memoir uh, of Faulkner's life called My Brother Bill, in which he describes uh, Faulkner uh, late in life when he was the writer in residence at the University of Virginia, sort of driving across the countryside in his Plymouth, uh, visiting battlefields and getting out and studying them. So he had this really deep interest in the war, and, and he had he had read, by some accounts, uh, you know, as much uh, about the war as as most historians, I, I don't really believe that. By the way, Jerry, so <laughs> that you won't uh, won't be offended by my saying that. But in any case, um, he was he was very interested in the conflict. Um, what he did then was kind of surprising, and and what he does is he silences the Civil War veteran. He's one of the authors I explore who contends uh, with this legacy that was left to Americans by Civil War veterans of the lost cause uh, and some of the the offshoots of that tradition. Um, He thought that the true moral center of the war was race, uh, the the greatest problem um, in American culture. And he knew that if he invited into his novels uh, the voice of the Civil War veteran, that that central subject of race was going to have a hard time coming to the, the forefront. And so what he does is he essentially uh, reduces this incredibly articulate figure of the Confederate veteran as he's existed in the late 19th and early 20th century American culture to someone who is really inarticulate and can barely speak a, a coherent sentence about the war and what it meant. Um, uh, he, there's, there's one famous scene in, in Faulkner fiction where um, a character of a later generation asks an old veteran, uh, you know, what was that war about anyhow? And the veteran says, be damned if I ever knew. 
Um, and I don't think that most Civil War veterans would have answered in that way. But with Faulkner, it's part of his project to silence those soldiers and to let civilians take over the telling of the war. The uh, the idea of the, the silent veteran brings to mind uh, another Civil War novel. And I, I don't know if you touch on other novels other than the ones that you mentioned in the chapter headings, but uh, um, uh, The History of Rome Hanks by mm. Joseph uh, Pennell. Mm. Uh, are you familiar with that? Well, you know, I, I have read passages years ago when I was doing the research for my book, but uh, it sounds like you have a fresher read in, in mind than I do. No, it, it, it's been many, many years. Uh, it was recommended to me by uh, my late mentor, David Donald, who we've been talking about on the show sure. the last couple of weeks. Uh, edited by Maxwell Perkins, uh, who was also, uh, of course, uh, Thomas Wolfe's editor, and, and Donald wrote a biography of Wolfe. But the uh, it, it's uh, well, it, it, it's a different book. It leaves some very vivid uh, word pictures in my mind. I don't think I've read it in, in 15 years, and I'll have to go back to it. But the idea of the silent veteran, the veterans, uh, there are some of those in that book as well. Those who go back home and. Uh, are determined uh, never to relive the experience in any sort of way, um, and, and uh, perhaps Faulkner uh, and Pinnell shared a similar vision there. I don't know. The um, uh, you mentioned briefly for a second there the, the, the character of Ambrose Bierce. Sure. And uh, let me raise that because uh, I know you have uh, a project involving Bierce. That's right. Uh, Tell us, uh, well, and as, again, as the listeners know, Bierce crosses these lines of memoirist and, and, and fiction writer because he served in uh, the Ninth Indiana and was, uh, uh, you know, fought in the war and experienced it. But then he also wrote about it both imaginatively as well as, uh, as theoretically, at least, a, a memoirist. Uh, so, how does he fit into this picture? And, and tell us about the Bierce project. Sure. Well, um, just briefly about how he fits into the picture. Um, you know, Bierce is one of those writers, uh, such as uh, John DeForest and, and uh, Joseph Kirkland and others, who did uh, you sort of break the literary convention and not write about the war in this highly sanitized way. I mean, he did describe the the carnage of the battlefield and the human wreckage that littered these smoking fields, and and so he does give insight into the war that other uh, memoirists did not. And so he, he's interesting, I think, to uh, to Civil War historians for that reason, uh, as well as to novelists who want to imagine the war. Um, he's a, he's a, a, an important figure. Um, it's also worth noting that uh, of all the figures in the American literary tradition um, that scholars have advanced as having made an important contribution, Bierce is the only one to have actually worn the uniform and fought during the Civil War. Um, you know, Mark Twain was a volunteer with with the Marion Rangers, uh, that's an irregular Confederate unit, for about 20 seconds, uh, and then he headed <laughs> out west. Um, Whitman served as a nurse, uh, Louisa May Alcott did as well. But in terms of wearing the uniform, uh, the only important American writer uh, to do so was Beers. Um, and for that reason, you know, I wanted to do a project involving Bierce uh, because of my interdisciplinary interests. And uh, in grad school, I'd done a lot with humanities computing uh, as part of the, the Rossetti Archive. And when I came to Penn State in 2004, I, um, I felt that something was missing from my life because I'd spent four years doing coding and, and web design and, and digital imaging. And so I decided to embark on a new project, and uh, beer seemed like a, a fantastic choice um, considering my interests and, and considering uh, his, uh, I would say, emerging uh, in, um, 
presence in the world of Civil War studies. I say that because you know, his face was recently on the cover of Civil War Times Illustrated. Um, there have been several books in recent years, one by Mike Owens about civil, um, Beers' Civil War fictions. There was another collected, uh, uh, um, there was an, I guess it's an anthology, collected works um, about the, the Civil War by uh, Beers. And uh, it seems to me like the right time to create a website of this kind. And so I contacted the leading beer scholars in the field and asked if they'd be willing to serve as um, editorial advisors and, and almost to a man or woman. Everyone was very interested. Um, they were very supportive, uh, and I spent about a year putting together the site, um, which can be found at ambrosebeers.org. Um, that's all one word. And uh, in 2005, then, we released the first journal uh, as part of this project. And the journal is it's peer-reviewed. It's now indexed in the MLA International Bibliography. Um, and uh, we've had uh, submissions from literary scholars about Bierce's career. We've had uh, a special issue devoted to um, historians' observations about Bierce. Um, and uh, it's been really gratifying to see this project grow over time. So uh, we can look at it online, uh, AmbroseBierce, all one word, dot org. That's correct. Um, uh, so you got the journal, you've got the website. What um, what are people saying about him? What uh, uh, you say he's an emerging figure? It's sort of hard to conceive of him that way, in a sense, for for people who've enjoyed his writing for a long time. Uh, but a lot of people, I guess, all they know is the Owl Creek Bridge story. They know that, and they know the Devil's Dictionary, right? Uh, right. Which is this great satirical masterpiece. Um, yeah, I, I think people are, are are recognizing his usefulness as uh, an index into the war, and um, and yeah, you're right. Not not all scholars are, are just discovering Beers uh, for the first time. Um, there's this joke uh, among scholars. I think even Beers himself weighed in on this that he's the most rediscovered writer in the American literary canon uh, because every five years or so, someone says, "Well, this is, here's this guy that no one's ever heard of before." But of course, uh, every, everyone's heard of Beers to some extent. But um, historians are, are looking at him carefully. Um, uh, you know, there have been two recent books in, in uh, the field about uh, the culture of death in the Civil War. Um, uh, Awaiting the Heavenly Country came out uh, around the same time that Drew Gilfin Faust's book uh, came out on, on death in the Civil War. Uh, Faust talks about Beers, um, our journal devoted to uh, historians' uh, responses to Beers, um, talk about his uh, uh, either departures from veterans' literature uh, and that his content and style are different, uh, or the ways in which he is um, sort of st- lockstep with other veterans in remembering the war. And, uh, and so it's there's a lot to be said still, but uh, there's a lot to, that's been said, and uh, our 2007 issue uh, went a long way towards identifying a place for beers in Civil War memory. Well, I think he's a, a fascinating writer and, and somebody I always enjoy reading. We'll take another break, and we'll come back in just a moment. We're talking with Craig Warren about Civil War uh, as portrayed in fiction. We'll do some more of that when we return on Civil War Talk Radio. Talk Radio Variety Channel, where the world comes to talk. 
Is it possible to write a history of a sound? Our guest today talks about the rebel yell and what we know of it when we return on Civil War Talk Radio. In an instant, my son could make anyone smile. In an instant, he was gone. The driver was looking for other cars. But he didn't watch out for my son crossing the street. Imagine, in the time it takes to stop for someone in the crosswalk, you could save a life or change yours forever. A message from the Federal Highway Administration. Every day, the chances of becoming a victim of mercury poisoning increase. Mercury poisoning may cause neurological damage that impairs learning, vision, and memory. And mercury itself has become part of our everyday lives, absorbed by certain fish, taken into our bodies, and passed on to our children like a common cold. But you can stop this. Log on to earthshare.org and find out how. A public service message brought to you by Earthshare and the Ad Council. The World Talk Radio Variety Channel, where the world comes to listen and talk. Welcome back to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, talking today with Craig Warren of Penn State University, the Erie campus, where he is the uh, the the commander in chief. I'm not sure what the right word is for the Ambrose Bierce Project, uh, an online project exploring one of the most interesting writers of the Civil War era, uh, and also the author of a forthcoming book. Uh, forthcoming book on uh, Civil War fiction. It's called Scars to Prove It, The Civil War Soldier and American Fiction. Kent State University Press will be bringing that out shortly in uh, uh, the summer here of 2009, so look for that soon. Uh, Craig, in the uh, little introductory moment there, I mentioned uh, the Rebel Yell, which I see you listed on online as something you've, you've looked into. Uh, before getting to that, uh, and, and am I on track there? Uh, do we have something to talk about? You do, yeah. Actually, I, I don't know how many people have ever visited my site to see that I'm working on that project, so I was a bit surprised <laughs> during the promo. <laughs> but yes, I, there. I, before that, though, before we leave beers behind, I, I want to ask, do you have a, a favorite beers story yourself? You know, I do, and it's not one that, that I think that most people would choose. Um, and it, the, the story is uh, it's titled The Son of the Gods. Um, and for me, it's it's really an interesting story because it's about um, uh, this romantic figure on a battlefield who uh, who begins uh, to to kind of take a foolhardy action that uh, most of his comrades um, ridicule. They they think it's silly, um, but as he moves forward in this action, uh, he increasingly wins the respect of these these soldiers. Um, and so by the end of of the story, we see that he's he sacrificed himself in in this really. Um, kind of, uh, I guess uh, I would say, dignified way. And his uh, comrades um, are are so inspired by this that, in fact, they, they kind of undo the work he was trying to accomplish. So there's this ironic ending, which is very typical of Bierce, and so it feels to me like a, a classic Bierce moment. But it's also uh, a story where we see something that doesn't often come through in Bierce's fiction, and that is this 
this uh, um, romanticism, um, and I think that that's that's often missing. It's usually far more cynical. <laughs> yeah, there, yeah, cynicism and the the ironic twist are certainly right, certainly there. Uh, but but, uh, and I guess any any uh, uh, cynical. The writer will often have at the core a sort of idealistic rage that makes them that way, and, and Beers has that as well when he mm-hmm, mm-hmm. is condemning the uh, the incompetence of uh, officers or other things. Um, well, the, all the stories uh, are interesting in their own way and, and recommended, and I'm sure most listeners have have read that, but they may want to check out AmbroseBeers.org and, and learn something about current scholarship on the subject. So, uh, yes, as, as I was getting ready for the show, I thought, uh, boy, I don't have uh, the manuscript to read here, but let's let's see what's online. So I, I did uh, take the liberty of looking at your uh, website, and it mentions that you have a, uh, a project in mind or underway, perhaps, uh, dealing with the history of the rebel yell. That's right. That's right. How, how does one even begin that? <laughs> it's not easy. Uh, yeah, and there really hasn't been sustained scholarly attention to the rebel yell in the same way that there has been to other artifacts of the Confederate past and especially to the Confederate military. You know, John Kosky has an excellent book on the, the Confederate battle flag uh, as, as America's most embattled emblem. Um, there have been uh, discussions and scholarly analysis of lost cause statuary. Uh, there's a you know, great controversy surrounding Confederate statuary at the University of Texas campus, for instance. Um, but there's not much about the Rebel Yell, and I think the reason for that is that it's it's invisible and it's intangible, and you can't stitch the Rebel Yell onto a state flag, and and uh, you know you you can't hold it in your hands and look at it from different angles, and and so for that reason, it's a real challenge to write about. And uh, you know, there's only been one book that that uh, takes the Rebel Yell as its central theme, and that's uh, uh, written by a human. And the author is really interested in kind of taking a comic romp through the South. So um, there wasn't a lot done scholarly on the subject, and it always interested me because as a student of language and literature, I'm really fascinated by the fact that this is a vocal phenomenon uh, that it's really almost impossible to transcribe. You know, to try to to record it on the page is is laughable. Um, And so that's interesting. And then as a cultural historian, I'm really interested in um, some of the myths that surround the Rebel Yell and also in its history uh, after the war, which is something people often ignore, um, its involvement in the civil rights movement, uh, its, its uh, development uh, in the decades since, um, right up to the present day. And I have to tell you, Jerry, that uh, this is the only project I imagine I'll ever work on when I'll be able to discuss both Stonewall Jackson and Billy Idol at the same time. <laughs> <laughs> Excellent juxtaposition. <laughs> That's but, right. <laughs> I guess the, the central question is, do we even know what it sounded like? Well, there, there's a lot of dispute about that. Uh, one of the... the um, major uh, views, vantage points, is that we don't. Um, you know, you hear a lot of uh, Civil War historians and even some anthropologists and linguists uh, say that we have lost it, that it's uh, it's something that was uh, alive for four years, um, and then at the end of, of 1865, when the Confederate armies finally laid down the, their, their weapons, that uh, we never heard it uh, in its true form again. And it could be recreated for interested audiences uh, in later years, 
by veterans, especially as they were growing old and, and uh, people wanted to hear it one last time. Um, but it was never the, the authentic yell. And if you buy into that, that, that approach, that understanding of the yell, then the answer is no. We don't really know what it's like, uh, what it sounded like. We at best have an estimation. We have an approximation of it. Um, and we can look at some veterans' attempts to uh, transcribe it um, on the page and, and go from there. Um, but the other way of looking at it is that the notion of a lost rebel yell is really just a metaphor for a lost South, this, this idea that the authentic old South uh, was killed by the war, uh, it was never heard from again, and, and I think that in some ways that's what's happened. We, we start to talk about the lost rebel yell as a way of just talking about a lost authentic South when in fact we, we do kind of know what the rebel yell sounded like. You know, it's a, the, po- the post-war version is undoubtedly different in some respects than the wartime version, but there's an evolution, as there are with any you know, cultural artifact. And, and so I think we can talk about uh, the rebel yell today. When do we first have uh, a recorded version? Uh, a, a recorded version? A sound recording version. Of, 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 uh, they'd be aged veterans... Uh, Mm-hmm. doing it, uh, but but do we have such a thing? We do, we do. And in fact, uh, your listeners, if they're interested, they can they can go online, and I, I don't know the, the name of the site, but a, a Google search will take them there. There is a, a North Carolina radio station that had a, uh, had a recording, I think maybe back in the in the 60s, of a veteran who was um, the on I don't know if it was a wax cylinder or what, but he he had he had been recorded giving his personal rendition of the rebel yell. Um, what the problem with that is is that the rebel yell was a collective event. Um, you know, no one voice could ever really sum up the rebel yell uh, in, in a way that would make you understand what its effect might have been on the battlefield. Um, and so you do have recordings of, of uh, some veterans, I think, you know, maybe in the, in the 30s or so at, at the, the, some of the Gettysburg reunions uh, voicing the rebel yell. Um, but uh, I'm not sure how authentic those would be for those people who buy into the notion that, uh, you know, it's been lost to history. There was a, a book not too long ago that was purported to be a history of sound, uh, I want to say the 19th century, um, but w- one sees this occasionally now, uh, people who are trying to write histories of sounds in general, what, what the, the aural world was like for previous generations. Mm-hmm. And one response to that is to say, well, you know, you got to find a new topic to get your dissertation approved, <laughs> something obscure that no one's thought of. Um, this is completely uncapturable and, and ridiculous, but let's go with it. Uh, on the other hand, that's what they—that's what they say about everything new. So uh, maybe this is uh, onto something with the rebel yell that people did write about it at the time. There's no question; it's a significant element of a, of a battlefield. Mm-hmm. Um, but is—is is, is there danger of this just becoming sort of uh, a, you know postmodern silliness? You mean the study of the rebel yell? Yes, the study of sound in general, I guess. Oh, I don't think so. You know, and again, maybe this is where uh, you know my role as uh, someone who is does English studies as opposed to uh, to sort of strict uh, historical studies uh, comes comes in. But I'm very interested in communication, um, and and also I'm very interested in the way that American identity develops um, according to uh, things which are not. Easy to commercialize or to or to package. Um, you know the 
the Confederate battle flag, I think, is a fascinating emblem, um, and it's a really it's a really interesting one. And there's a lot to be to be said and done with that. But the invisible, intangible rebel yell um, for me is even more interesting because you it, it is hard to to put your hands on. To, it's hard to define it, um, and so I don't think that becomes postmodern silliness to talk about something that you you know, you, you you can't. You know, put a saddle on. I think that that's that's interesting um, to think about as uh, a part of the American identity, which uh, we cannot easily define. Um, right. And and I don't actually think that either. But oh, okay. <laughs> but I do want to talk. There there are examples of postmodern silliness out there, but I don't think this is necessarily one. Certainly not the rebel yell as such. But in terms of the transmission of sound through history and and how we remember, you mentioned these veterans uh, recording it. Um, with with recorded music, uh, the traditional music, the fiddle and banjo tunes that were played, uh, obviously evolved over time. They were first recorded largely, at least commercially, in the 1920s. And then in the folk boom or folk scare of the 1960s, you had groups like the New Lost City Ramblers mm. recreating note for note the tunes of the 1920s as they came down to them on recordings. While those who survived from that era, who were still playing, their playing had evolved and changed over 40 years. And these, these young Yankees were recreating the old records. Yeah. And I wonder if the same is, could happen with the Rebel Yell. Any, uh, It's bound to change, I guess, uh, over right. time. And you're suggesting that's okay. I would love to explore this further, but I cannot believe we're hearing the music in the background already that says we are out of time. Uh, so, Craig, once again, thank you very much for being on the show at short notice, and I'm very much looking forward to your book coming out. Oh, well, thank you very much. I appreciate the opportunity to speak with you and, uh, and uh, have something to say to your listeners. And uh, listeners, thank you for listening to Civil War Talk Radio. Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the World Talk Radio Network. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit worldtalkradio.com. The World Talk Radio Network, where the world comes to talk. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the World Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management.